The first recorded data visualizations were made perhaps 40,000 years ago. The meaning of those early data visualizations is lost to us, but what remains is the human need to make data meaningful. That's particularly true today when we generate so much of it. Our ability to generate data has by far outpassed our ability to make sense of it. We are just amassing huge amounts of data, right, on a daily basis. That alone has been triggering ways, innovative ways of making sense of it. One of them is visualization. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, an interview with Manuel Lima, the senior user experience design leader for Google. He's also author of several books exploring how some visual themes, such as circles, go back to the beginnings of human understanding. I'm Fenella Saunders. The connection between visualization and data has been around for centuries, millennia even. Galileo's famous Vitruvian man, a human man inscribed in both the circle and a square, is a visualization of data that Galileo himself gathered to compare with the data from Vitruvius. And Vitruvius was a Roman architect who drew his own Vitruvian man around 2,000 years ago. Manuel Lima, in his research on the history of visualizations, suggests the first recorded data visualizations are at least 40,000 years old, including petroglyphs and other symbols that people all over the world left behind. The true meaning of those data visualizations is lost, but Lima says the human need to make data visualizations remains. Lima is the senior user experience design leader for Google. We spoke via the internet. Here's an excerpt of our interview, which starts with my asking him about why data visualization has become so important today. I think there's multiple factors, right? There's definitely the, the growth in storage, right? Our ability to generate data has by far outpassed our ability to make sense of it. We are just amassing huge amounts of data, right, on a daily basis. That alone has been triggering ways, innovative ways of making sense of it. One of them is visualization, right? It's not just visualization, but like tools, AI, all of that is to, to help us make sense of this massive, massive amounts of data. I think there's also a lot of, uh, a lot of the field itself has become easier for outsiders, right? When I was doing work in this area 15 years ago, you had to be really like hardcore computer scientists to be part of this. There was not a lot of tools available uh, in the media. They were roughly talking about this. And I think that was really a huge outburst of interest in, in, uh, in society at large because there was a huge democratization of things from tools. You know, all of a sudden we had, right now we actually have dozens and dozens of tools that make it really easy for anyone to do work in this area. There was also a democratization of, of data, open data. Data became a commodity, right? It's anyone can use data. There's highly available with data. And then I think the media contributed also a lot to it. You know, like 15 years ago, maybe the New York Times had just a couple of graphic artists doing work there. Now you have a dedicated data visualization team doing tremendous work, right? And this is just the same for mo most major uh, media outlets. And they're not even being stuck with a traditional pie chart, the traditional bar chart. They're actually doing some really innovative work, which is great because I think it's really elevating uh, visual literacy altogether. So I think those are some of the factors that you see at play and why data visualization is becoming such a, a new thing. But I think it's also getting important to show the context, you know, to provide the history in the sense that it, it's not completely new. We have been doing this like, for centuries now. So just to kind of move off from one point that you made there where you said now people have dozens and dozens of tools where everybody can 
jump into this. I wondered if you could kind of talk a little bit about that balance, though, in the sense that there's still a design process that has to go into a visualization. It's not all automated. Yeah, that's that's definitely a, a critical point. And and to be honest, I've been in, in many conferences and, and seminars where I think once in a while you always have what I call, what I would call it, the data, the data purist, right? This is a person that maybe stands off in the audience and asks the question, you know, normally that person is against everything that we're doing, right? And they, they say, you know, you guys are destroying the data because, you know, you should let the data speak on, on its own and not convey it visually because you're just like, you know, biasing the data altogether. I mean, of course, that's a lot of gibberish, to be to be honest, only because raw data is meaningless for humans, right? There's no way you can actually understand or make any <laughs> meaningful pattern through data alone. So there's always an aspect of data transformation that is required for us humans to interpret and make sense of it, right? Now, as part of that transformation, there's also space for biases to trickle in, as with everything, right? And, you know, the same way that, you know, in journalism, you have to kind of keep an eye open for, for accuracy and facts, right? Especially in these days. Um, it's the same thing with visualization, right? There's actually kind of three stages when it comes to, you know, grabbing the data and actually visualizing it, right? First of all, you have data collection, right? Even the choice, your personal choice of going out and picking a data set, a specific one, is already a form of bias because you have making a selection, right? You could have chosen a different one, right? So I think there's, you know, there's intentional choices being done along the way. Then of course, data analysis, that's actually a really important part of the process that is kind of like the behind the scenes that no one really talks about, no one, no one really understands what goes on. But a lot of times that can, again, again, biases can really trickle in when it comes to data analysis. You can easily remove you know, columns and aspects of the data that are not interesting or relevant to your theory or hypothesis, and you can add others. So there's a lot of playful things you can do with data, you know, removing and copying and all that stuff and editing behind the scenes. And, and it's, it's definitely an important part of the, of the process that people need to be aware. And then I think goes, goes more to your, to your point, the, the, the final stage is visual encoding, the language of data visualization. And I think, you know, when we say that, you know, when we talk about written language, it's basically two components, right? It's the, the, the building blocks, the letters that make up words, and it's grammar, right? The rules on how to combine those things, right? And with those two things alone, you can create endless combinations, right? You can create the, the, the most striking piece of poetry or just a piece of on journalism. I mean, this is a full gamut of, of possibilities. And the same thing with visual language, with data visualization, right? There's the building blocks in these cases are graphics, right? That can change depending on shapes, on colors, on sizes, right? And then there's like the grammar of graphics as well, right? You know, like the, the rules are not to combine them in ways that are effective. And that's the visual encoding part. Um, so I think it's really important that people understand, even if you are a data scientist or you are interested in, in, uh, in visualization, it's really important that you understand basic design principles, right? And specifically, some of those that actually come from, from cognitive science, right? I think there's, there's a huge area of knowledge for us designers and non-designers to learn from that, uh, from that aspect, specifically perception in, in other fields. Mm -hmm. I don't think the first word when you say data visualization, the first word you think of isn't necessarily ethics. But 
in some ways, that's almost what needs to be thought about. And um, it's difficult to get away from COVID-19 here in the sense of there's been so much debate about the modeling and how it's being presented and how accurate the data projections really are. So I wonder if you could talk generally about sort of the ethics behind data visualization also. There's this guy, Jason Moore, that actually put together this Hippocratic Oath for data visualization, which I think is really, really uh, timely, right? And it says something like, I should not use visualization to intentionally hide or confuse the truth, which is intended to portray. I will respect the great power visualization as in garnering wisdom and misleading the uninformed. I accept this responsibility willfully and without reservation and promise to defend this oath against all enemies, both domestic and foreign. <laughs> so I think it's a really good, I think it's, it's a timely discussion. I think, yeah, the, the, the whole notion of ethics in data visualization is super, super central to the future of, of the practice. And yes, with COVID especially, now you see that happening. Uh, I think transparency is a big part of it, you know, like talking about being very uh, blunt and open about what data are using, having linking to the data, explaining how the data was treated, right? The whole data transformation part. I think those are really, really good things. But I think it's all, uh, it's really upon us to have this sort of like inquisitive mind and always question, you know, always take things with a bit of a grain of salt. You know, data availability is one aspect that really influences the, the final outcome of the visualization. Do you think it's the responsibilities of designers to try to integrate visually into their graphics some way to indicate uh, that data isn't certain or that it's projected versus real data? Because a lot of, I mean, even particularly in these COVID-19 projections, there's, there's less of that. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people looking at these visualizations who aren't savvy enough to dig into mm -hmm. what's being presented. They're just looking at the lines. That's a good point. I mean, I think definitely in part, uh, the responsibility falls into designers' shoulders. Uh, I don't think there's, you can run away from it. On the other hand, the only thing I would say is that many times some of the charts that we see so often on Twitter and other places are made by large teams, right? Where the design is just one voice in 20, right? You have you know, various editorial people and roles and sometimes engineers and, 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 and software developers all creating this piece. And so the responsibility really falls on, on everyone. You know, uh, it's not uniquely the designer to blame. Um, but yes, I mean, in the end of the day, everyone should, should be responsible because they were all putting this together, right? Uh, and it's not just about, you know, being transparent about the data sources and, and making that, that very open, but it's also even in the design choices that they make as part of that visual encoding, right? And there's so many subtle ways for you to actually change the dynamic of, of a chart. Sometimes, you know, you can do that graphically, but even changing the title of that chart is, is remarkable. I wondered if you could talk to that a little bit about how areas of science that I think have um, benefited hugely from visualization, mm. it can actually change the perception of an entire field in a way, just from the way that it's presented. Oh, I mean, I, I can give you an example. And this is actually some, again, like I, I think a lot of, well, whenever you have a scientist that is somehow dubious of the power of visualization, I, I don't think it's probably a, a really a, a you know, I wouldn't say an intelligent scientist, but it's definitely out of touch with reality because most of science, as we know today, ma major advances in science happen through the means of visual aids, right? 
some of the one of the best examples I like to give is Darwin himself, right? When Darwin wrote the Origin of Species, there's actually the original one has no single illustration. The whole book is is illustrationless, <laughs> apart from one single illustration. And there's actually a letter from Darwin to the publisher saying that it was critical that this illustration went into the book because it was critical to his theory to explain how his idea, his theory on evolution actually worked. And this was called the tree of life, this famous illustration, right? And, and of course it was immensely powerful and a lot of, a lot of the, the understanding of the theory of evolution came through that image alone. So many cases exist, but this is an example of, of Darwin himself acknowledging through a letter the importance of that visual aid for people to really understand the ramifications of, of this theory, right? And of course, many other examples exist throughout science. I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts about these kinds of visualizations where the person looking at this is going to look at this and go, wow, it's a really cool concept. You know, it's really neat to see, mm -hmm. but they're not going to be able to really tell what yeah. the significance of it is. It's just more of an art piece than a science piece. It has a scientific yeah. element to it. Do you think that these have value in bringing people in and looking more at, at the science as well as the art? I, I totally agree. I mean, I think there's a huge cross-pollination today between art and science, specifically in, in the field of, of data, data science and data visualization and data art, right? And I, I think artists today, even traditional from traditional fields like painting and, and, and sculpture, are, of course, affected by everything else that is going on in the world, as they always have. And they, sometimes they are even the first to notice patterns, right? Um, and data is just a new ingredient for them to play with. Right, so there's that element of things. So sometimes you have data art pieces, and they got criticized because they're not effective or they're not accurate, which is not the point, right? It's an art right. project. No one criticizes a painting by not being, you know, effective. It's just an art piece. Mm -hmm. So it kind of depends also, like on the goal of the piece, right? Like on the audience, like who is this for? Like if you, if the goal, for example, is that this is a chart that let's say that you are doing in a poster in, uh, you know, in a conference and the goal is for people to actually spend some time looking at it versus, you know, th this being an illustration on a scientific paper, right? It probably it's the wrong audience for doing something like this. So it really changes the context affects this uh, altogether, I would say. The only thing I would also say about some of these projects is that I, I was more critical in the past sometimes when they were not highly effective. I think we need to give them a break, and 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 by giving them a break, I mean is that we need to have space for exploration. Um, we have been using and repurposing old visual metaphors for too long, and I think we are facing challenges of a whole different nature, and we need people to explore new ways of visualizing things, right? And because that's the only way we're going to be able to come up with with real new novel ways of models for visualization, right? We need to experiment. And with the experimentation comes failure, and that's part of it. Uh, and many times you will fail, but I think we need to, to, to invest and we need to, to give them space to innovate as well. So how does that idea of experimenting and new ideas and new ways of presenting data mesh together in terms of design rules? Not, they're not quite rules. I don't know what you're talking guidelines, I guess is a better way of putting it. How do those two principles mesh together? Good design versus giving people room to experiment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, they, they don't, they're not restrictive. So the, the great thing about 
principles is that they're not, and I, I love the notion of principles because they are eye-level guidance, but they're not very prescriptive. They don't tell you exactly what to do or not to do, right? So there's still a lot of space to maneuver within that within those boundaries, right? So you still have notions of like what makes good design, right? And uh, you know, Gestalt laws are great from like understanding perce human perception and things of that nature, but it doesn't tell you exactly what you need to do in order to get uh, a given outcome, right? Yeah. Just it's it's very kind of loose type of guidelines, which I I like, and I I would hate it for it to be very specific and restrictive, exactly because of what you you are implying. In because if if it, that was the case, it would leave no room for innovation, right? So I think when it comes to creating and putting together guide, guidelines or, or principles, they need to be somehow eye level to allow enough space for people to maneuver between those boundaries. It's great to meet you yeah. virtually. Um, Likewise. I hope to meet you in person sometime, but um, <laughs> I very much appreciate your time. And, of course, uh, yeah, likewise. And, and stay safe out there, okay? <laughs> that was Manuel Lima, Senior User Experience Design Leader for Google and author of several books exploring how some visual themes go back to the beginnings of human understanding. In the July-August 2020 issue of American Scientist magazine, a special issue about our creative brains, read a different excerpt of our interview. It's in the article titled First Person, Manuel Lima. You'll also find it online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Fenella Saunders. Thank you for joining us.